Welcome back, everybody. We're going to cover um, section six. As you've been following the podcast, this is will be the section six of uh, Ryan's book, Startup Marketing. And uh, this one, we cover a little bit about that success formula. And, and that's kind of where I want to start off because you kind of start right there and laying out um, that success formula as you're now wrapping up and tying a lot of the concepts you've been covering through the book together. And, you know, in that success formula, you kind of lay it out in general, but I want in second, I want you to go a little bit more specifically, but in general, you know, it's the idea behind it is, you know, have you, is your company to the point where it's generating enough sales to generate the profits and cash that you need to continually grow and be self-sufficient, right? That's, that's the basic idea behind this success formula, but, um, there's more to it than just that as we, as you start breaking it down in this section. So, what I really wish that the readers and the listeners would understand here is that things change when you get out of the startup phase. And I mean, the book is called Startup Marketing. Like it's in the name to say, hey, we're talking about startups here. And I wish that, uh, you know, anyone that is, you know, listening to this would understand that a lot of things are going to shift when you move out of a startup phase. And I want to put a little clarification because if, if you know someone has been in business for a while, they can still have a startup phase if they launch a new project or if they expand into a new territory. So startup phases happen continually throughout the you know experience of the business. It's not only just starting up, it's also expanding. That's, that follows the same rules. But basically... What it is, is it's saying that the rules are different for startups than they are for established businesses. And that's why when we talk about the success formula, it really is hitting on, okay, this is a success formula for startups. You're trying to understand, now I can shift the rules. Now I can play a different game and and do that with my business. And one of the big distinctions here is cash flow. Uh, so I, I'm going to look at a couple things that uh, if you're if you're looking at the actual book, it's on page 122, and it says small business success. And I've put three bullet points that I think people should really use as the uh, you know as the measurement of success. Because all too often people are looking at things like, oh, okay, how much money am I making? Or they're looking at like the prestige or, you know, they'll have a ribbon cutting and now they're in business. And I'm like, all those things are superficial. There's nothing wrong with, you know, doing a ribbon cutting. It's a great thing, but it really has nothing to do with your success, right? Well, and I like is, you know, as you're jumping into that, that you've laid the precedent that as you look at the success definition, one the underlying principle is, is cash coming internally or externally, right? Yeah. And, and that's really what I want to hit on here when we say success formula is a lot of this is going to hit on cash flow. How well are you able as a business to have cash flowing in your business? And again, this is a marketing book, but if you don't link cash flow to marketing, if you don't link profit and profitability to marketing, then in my opinion, you're guessing. You're just right. kind of hoping that your marketing is going to work and hoping to get lucky. You've got to link it to the cash and the profits. 
Great. All right. So now on that page 122, you have a couple of bullet points. Let's go through those and any other insight that you maybe want to share with those. Sure. So the first one, we are already mentioned this, but let's go ahead and just cover it. So it says the small business is generating its own internal and sustainable cash flow. To me, this is the number one factor between a startup and between a uh, existing or established business. And the other thing that changes here is once I have internal and sustainable cash flow, I'm actually going to increase the amount of cash I'm going to put into my business. And this isn't, uh, you know, explicitly stated in the book, but we, you know, there's a, there's a whole section on the low cash model where it's saying, don't use cash, don't use cash, don't use cash. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, use cash. And, you know, I, I, I sort of look at this similar to other, you know, other events that happen in, you know, in, in a human's life where, you know, I got a kid who he's getting ready to get his driver's license. And prior to getting that driver's license, it's like, okay, don't drive, don't drive, don't drive. And then as soon as he's going to get his license, it's like drive as much as possible <laughs> so that you can get the experience <laughs> that you need to be a good driver. And, you know, there's really this shift where now all of a sudden it makes sense to do this. And so in your business, there should be a shift where now all of a sudden it makes sense to use cash. And that's saying, okay, now that I have a success formula, feed it, give it a lot of cash, make it, you know, go or, or grow as quickly as possible, which actually leads to the second point. It says the small business is growing and improving. Now, before you jump onto that second one, so hold your thoughts. Okay. I want to, I want to ask your opinion on this because in anyone who has done any level of education with a business background, there's a principle that talks about, um, it's, it's healthy for a business to have some level of debt as yes. their model, right? Yes. Okay. Now we're looking at startup marketing and we understand that we want to keep that debt as low as possible. Do you have recommendations that say, all right, here's, here's a balance to say, Hey, you, I mean, cause larger corporations, it's not uncommon for them to have a 40, 60 mix, 30, 70, you know, there's some that are otherwise extreme, but you know, they a company can still be have a 30% or 40% in, in their mix of debt and still be very healthy. Yeah. But um, it tends to be the exact opposite in startup that it's like 40% debt <laughs> and 20% equity, right? So I'm, I'm unbalanced, that's for sure. But if I get that back down, is there, is there a logic to say, hey, look, all right, as you move, when you kind of get back into this threshold, you should be showing signs of being healthy and moving to these next stages? Yeah. So great question. There's a lot to unpack here. So I'm going to try and do this. Uh, and maybe this is way more. For yeah, I, I was going to say, we, we <laughs> might actually want to do uh, an episode on this topic alone because there is enough to unpack in it. But I, I think it's a, it's a good enough question that we can, we can answer some of that pretty quickly. So a couple things that I'm looking for is number one, um, every business is different. And so it's impossible to say, here's the right number, you know, amount of debt, like, okay, uh, yeah. you know, a hundred thousand dollars is, is healthy, but $150,000 is too much. You know, I can't do that. But there are some ratios out there for guidance. And, and, I, I, and I, I use love, that word guidance. Yes. And I love where you were starting to go to those ratios. Uh, one of them you said was a little goofy. I think you said a 40, 20 ratio, which I didn't understand. Uh, I think I you meant 40, 40 60. 60. <laughs> yeah, but, sorry. um, 
so there, there is a little bit of, of guidance here. And so I'm just going to put some quick guidance out there. And uh, number one is if ever there's more debt than equity, it means you don't own your company. Correct. And personally, I don't think a startup should even get that close to approaching that line because you see a lot of uh, takeover situations. You know, if you are putting in the risk and someone else is holding the control, they could come and take control after the risk has been done. And, and you see that with some angel investments, uh, you know, some venture capital investments. And so I would just caution businesses to not give away, uh, you know, too much ownership in the form of other people's equity or, you know, debt investment. You want to hold enough control. And so make sure that you're you're holding enough control. Okay. Totally agree. Um the, the second guidance that I would give is I would say if all the experts uh, or your advisory team or, you know, if, if you're pulling up YouTube videos, if, if they're all saying that, you know, a 70-30 mix is healthy, then you should make it a point to try and do it with only 20% debt or 25% debt. So whatever the standard is, you should always aim to beat the standard. And you've expressed that frequently throughout the book. Yeah, and and, and so that's something that I think, uh, and, and, and there are different standards. Some industries are very debt intensive. Some of them require essentially no debt. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to be a social media influencer, I can actually put a lot of time and effort into it without a lot of dollars. And so maybe debt's not on the table, but, um, you know, that that's industry specific. And so, so I'm looking at what the industry standards are. And if I don't know what the industry standards are, this is where I'm saying there's a lot to unpack because there are ways to know what those industry standards are, but we're not going to delve into that uh, here. But if I don't know what those industry standards are, then I should just do a little homework and talk to some advisors, people who are in the industry, talk to bankers or lenders who have been around the block for a few years and they can they can point you in a good direction they can give you at least a base number to to go off of um, and any base number is going to be better than you know shooting in the dark and and yeah. so um, and and then the uh, the final thing that that I would say is to just make sure that you're linking your debt to like it needs to be an engine of production not an engine of consumption and so if i'm using debt that debt is used to produce more widgets or to produce uh you know more content or produce uh you know more skews what whatever you're producing uh that you know that debt should uh it should increase your production but if it starts increasing your consumption where all of a sudden you're like increasing your payroll or you are increasing um you know the the amount of equipment that you have but not the efficiency of that equipment, then you're increasing your consumption. And so debt as a, as a producer is a very valuable tool. As a consumer, it, it's chains. It's, it'll just lock you down and, and really hamper your business growth. Yeah, okay. All right, now you can jump to the second book. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate so, the insight. Uh, the small business is growing and improving. 
uh, this is important. And the funny thing is, is when I say growing and improving, again, I'm bringing it back to the financials. Like I really am looking at the sales and profit relationship here. So a lot of times people, they'll measure their growth by like how many followers they have on social media. They'll measure their growth by how many leads they've generated at maybe a conference or, you know, if they've got a sales guy going out and patting the pavement and they're looking at like lead generation growth or they're looking at production capabilities like, oh, we can now produce more or we're holding more inventory. I think all of those are bad indicators of growth. Well, I, I like them as what I would call leading indicators. Okay. They're, they're telling me that things are at least should be headed in the right direction, but they don't tell me on the backside if I'm actually growing or improving, right? I have to use financials and, to finish the last piece of that equation. And, and, and that's, um, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I would put it in these terms. I want to look at the financials first. Uh, you know, so when you're saying those are leading indicators, you're actually correct. But I'm, I'm shifting a little bit in my mind. I'm looking at the financials first. And then I'm looking at those as supporting indicators, which is the same thing as a leading indicator. But yeah, I'm saying, yeah, okay, yeah. do I have the inventory to support my growth? Do I have the payroll to support my growth? You know, okay. the labor to yeah, support yeah. my growth. And and so technically that those are leading indicators, but I like to look at it the other way. I like to say, what is my sales relative to my profits? Are my profit margins holding steady or improving as my sales grow? Because if my sales are growing and my margins are slipping, then unless that's intentional, that that can be you know a warning sign. Um, you usually don't want that in the startup phase as you're more established as a business. Uh, sometimes you have to give up some margin to be more competitive. Uh, you get forced into those situations. Again, that would be an episode we'd have to unpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, that's where my thought was going is like, wow, we could do a whole episode on that one. I, and, and, and I guess, let me say this. So section six is really the last how-to section of the book. I mean, there is a, a final section, section seven. And the purpose of section seven is to just kind of button it all up and put it all together. But really, section six is the last how-to section of the book. And the the thing that, you know, there's a lot of how-to beyond the startup phase. And that's why we keep getting into these things where I'm like, oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, it's it's kind of like saying, now that you've graduated from the startup phase, now you're into the, you know, operations <laughs> of the company and you need to start looking at you know, your profit margins and all yeah. of your financial ratios and, you know, how much leverage the, you know, or debt the business can take on. And, and th these are all very, very good, big established business type questions. So that, that's why this keeps, you know, it, it's very open-ended because you are transitioning from startup to established. But it's good that, you know, earlier in the book, when you start talking about break even and things like that, I mean, those are helping set the stage for a lot of the other financial stuff that you've got to start embracing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I, I do want to hit on this. I mean, the book is Startup Marketing, and so we're talking about a marketing book. But the reason why this podcast is Marketing Management and Money is because we don't isolate any of those. We say that Correct. you've got to look at 
you know, the marketing piece, but you've also got to manage your business and you've got to understand those financials, the money piece. And so you can't ignore any one of those. It's, you know, it's a three-legged stool and you take away any one of those legs and the stool falls over. And so, yeah, we keep bringing it back to and we say, okay, you know, are you managing your business correctly? Are you looking at the financial statements, even though we're talking about marketing? Yeah. Now, the last bullet point on that page, you talk about, you know, does the business have a recipe for success so that it, they can duplicate their success? And as you start into talking a little bit about that recipe for success, I love the one question that you ask, and that is, as it stands, could I sell my business? <laughs> right? It's a great question <laughs> and to and ask. As, and as you go through it, then you start breaking that <clears throat> down a little bit about that one question, because I think that's the one question that most people fail to ask if they want to understand if they're successful or not. That question really helps them to answer where maybe they're at in this transition or in this process. Because if, if you say, hey, can I sell my business? And the answer is no. I, I'm still in startup phase. Does that make sense? I'm not, mm-hmm. I haven't shown key indicators that I have things lined up, my company's growing, etc. So let's talk about that one a little bit more. And because you have a, a whole number of paragraphs that kind of go through points on that. It, it's a big deal. And uh, for this commentary recording that we're doing here, I want to bring in some commentary that's not in the book. And that is people understand real estate pretty well because we all live in houses or apartments or condos or wherever like we live in real estate and so we're more familiar with it and if I'm trying to sell a house I understand intuitively that my house has to be livable for someone to buy that house if there's no roof on the house I can't sell it you know, I mean, you might find a, a yeah. special case where someone's, you know, wanting to buy something for yeah. a weird reason. But Foreclosures is what it's called. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but if I'm trying to sell a house, there are some basics that you expect to be in place. You expect there to be windows and doors. You expect the foundation to be put in place. You expect there to be some plumbing. And if those things are missing from the house, you understand that it's not sellable that you just can't sell that in the market. And then there are levels. I mean, like I might do a remodel to get more money out of selling my house, but there are some essentials that have to be there. The same holds true to your business. There are some essentials that have to be there. So if I'm trying to sell a business and I haven't taken the time to put together financial statements, I haven't taken the time to put together policies and procedures, I have no client list, you know, I don't have a customer base, Um, or I haven't validated that customer base, it's all hypothetical, then I'm missing the basic structure of a business and I'm no longer sellable. And you would think that this is more common sense and, you know, intrinsic, but it's not. But but it's mostly because people, you're in the mindset that, hey, look, I'm trying to start something. I'm not trying to get out of something. Right. Right. But it's a great question to be asking because that, that, that one question alone can really help you understand uh, a lot about your business mm-hmm. and maybe weaknesses that you have as you're trying to actually get to this stage where you're an existing business. You know, you have a mature income coming in. It's, you know, you're not relying on debt. Right. Because, you know, if you, if you say, hey, yeah, can I sell my business? Well, yeah, of course, but I have 
eighty percent in debt. Right. No one's going to buy the debt. Right. Yeah. And and what exactly are you selling? And just asking that question uh, repeatedly that leads to a healthier business. You know, you you spend more time developing a, a solid customer base that's transferable. You know, and and you made an excellent point. You said people don't get into business thinking of getting out of business, but if you think about how transferable your business is, you could grow it to a new area. So let's say that you started up in one city, and now that it's fully transferable, you can transfer or expand into another location because you've taken the time to make it that way. Whereas if you're kind of just making things up as you go, you can't expand your business. You're sort of stuck in your geographical location. And we know that today it is so difficult to really make it on a business that doesn't have a, a broad reach. You know, if you're limited to your town and that's the only business that you can get, uh, you're going to be struggling as a business the whole time. Like you always want to have that franchise model mentality where you can expand and grow your business. Yeah. Now, you you clearly point out that as you go through this formulas for success, that um, unfortunately, and as painful as it is, there's there's not this perfect formula out there. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the main purposes why you want to go through this process is because you want to weed out and define as much of that formula per se, you know, that process, so that as you move on, you have less variables, meaning that there's less things that are likely to put you out of business. Right. And so there is a lot of uncertainty. And I'm talking about a success formula as though it's the holy grail. And once we find it, (laughs) you know, everything is, is solved. And, you know, our business will just grow from here on out. And that can be a little bit misleading. Uh, when we say success formula throughout the book, it really is talking about have we figured out enough that the business is sustainable, that the business is working? It doesn't mean that, you know, we've figured everything out. And so there is a lot of trial and error, there is a lot of unknown uncertainty. Um, you know, I, I was, I was talking to an entrepreneur that was looking at this new opportunity and I just made the comment to them. I said, if it's as easy as the way you're describing it, someone else is already doing it. Like it's supposed to be difficult. That's part of the barriers to entry. And, And so as you're figuring out your success formula, part of that is overcoming some hurdles that, you know, keep it so that you don't have a flood of competition just coming and taking you out. There was this interesting thing that happened. Uh, oh, I don't remember when it was. It was pretty recently in the last two or three years these little things called fidget spinners. And I think most yeah. people are familiar with them, but I'll describe yeah. them anyway. If, if, you, if you don't know what a fidget spinner is, it's this uh, little toy that you just spin and it, it literally, it's a fidget, you know, like, like people who like to fidget with things. And, and it's just on, on this wheel that spins around and they, you know, you can light them up or some of them have a little bit of noise to them. And, there was this weird thing where all of a sudden they exploded. 
And they were this huge business opportunity for people. People were going out and buying just thousands of them because they're like, oh my gosh, everyone's buying fidget spinners. And that came and went very quickly. You know, it, mm-hmm. it went as fast as it came. And I actually know some people personally that are sitting on about 10,000 fidget spinners right now. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And by the time they realized, oh, this is a market opportunity, and then they did all the research to figure out, uh, you know, where to buy them and get them manufactured. And so they found an overseas manufacturer, but you had to buy them in bulk. And then they bought them in bulk. They didn't understand how long that takes to, you know, place that order, get them shipped, and then put them out on the market. And this fad left. And they're sitting on, you know like tens of thousands of these things. And and I look at that when I say success formula is it's not a flash in the pan. It's not a glitch. It's not something that you're like, oh my gosh, we got to jump on this today. It's a formula, meaning that it can be repeated over and over and over again. So if you're trying to do a startup and it's, if, if, you, if you're trend chasing, then you will get burned. You want a formula that you can put in over and over and see great results coming out. Now in the formula that you present, um, that first step, um, is using that MS approach is clearly, and you've kind of been describing it here is the demand in the market, understanding the demand, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, which in the example you gave, they didn't understand the demand. And, and, they, and, and I think that's good to point out that they saw the demand, but they didn't understand the demand, right? You know, they didn't understand that. Yeah, this is very trendy. So that first one is, is, you know, demand, you know, take the time to do the, do the background to understand the demand. Then the second one, of course, is test. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to go through and test that out as you go through it. Um, you you kind of make a remark in the book um, as a word of caution that says, if you want to, if you want it too badly and you force it to happen, you'll think you've identified a demand when you really haven't. And we see that all the time. Yeah. I, in other parts of our lives, as we counsel with people, we see that way too often that they're so emotionally invested that even when you put a huge red flag on the table to say this is a problem, it gets ignored. Mm-hmm. And this is what I would say to that. There's nothing wrong with being emotionally attached to something. Just know that there's a high risk of losing your investment on it. You know, and so yeah. I, I was working with a, a startup just recently that they had something that they were really excited to do. And uh, there were two partners going in on it. And when, you know, when I looked at it, and I said, look, there's nothing wrong with this except for there's a decent chance of you guys losing all of your money. And they're like, well, it's only a few thousand dollars and we're both OK with that. I'm like, Then fine. If, if you both understand yeah. that you have a strong bias here and, you know, but to them, the only way they could test the market is they did have to do some investment. And I had no problem with a few thousand dollar investment. You know, it was, it was money that they could afford to lose. They didn't take out any debt. They didn't have any investors. They won't, yeah. weren't beholden to anything. And they said, yeah, we're willing to risk this, you know, small amount of money to see what this is going to do. And I'm like, yeah, that works. Now, as part of that test piece of it, you bring back in break even again and the and the model that you present on the break even. Let's go through that a quick one more time as a reminder for everybody, as a refresher. Um, 
and then we'll jump into a little few more other pieces you have about testing that I think are extremely important to talk about. Yeah, so break-even is essentially where you have no profit and no loss, and so it equals zero. Well, um, throughout the book, I like to look at the marketing break-even, and I say that um, sales are a function of marketing. Correct. And then uh, if my marketing... So if my sales uh, lead to no profit or no loss, then I hit break even. If my marketing leads to my sales, then that's going to say that, you know, my marketing break even is the point at which uh, all of my marketing efforts have created no profit or no loss. And then I turn the profit and loss over to cash and I say, okay, at what point does the marketing and the cash equal zero? You know, the amount the amount of effort I'm putting into the marketing you know, can I get that to to be zero? And the whole reason why I break it out that way is to say that the higher the marketing threshold or the marketing requirement, you know, if I'm going to invest a lot of cash, it requires me to have better marketing and to put up more cash to support that marketing. And so I want to keep that as low as possible, clear that break even, and then start to invest once, you know, that's that's part of your success formula. Well, and, I, and I like that because that just down to earth premise is that when you run out of money, you run out of business. business yeah. Right? You're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so break even really helps you understand um, some components so that as you're working your way through these, uh, this model that you, you have a way to gauge whether or not you're, you're, you're trending in the right way or whether, wait a minute, I'm a zombie business and I'm dead and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, going back to the example of the, you know, the entrepreneurs that they were putting in just a few thousand dollars of their own money to uh, test this idea, that now became their hurdle. So they need marketing that's going to get them back $3,000. And, you know, and this includes all the expenses that have to go into it, you know, so they're going to have sales that are going to be well above $3,000 to get that back. Um, but that's now their hurdle. And, and if you understand, you know, so they understood that that was their hurdle. And a $3,000 hurdle is, it, it's pretty palatable. You know, a $300,000 hurdle, you know, that's, that's difficult. And, I, uh, I actually, unfortunately, uh, met with a uh, business owner recently, and I don't really know their situation very well, uh, so I, I can't speak to the specifics of it, but they were in the construction industry. They got an SBA loan, and business was good, and then all of a sudden, uh, their business went under, and they had to file bankruptcy, which is terrible, but they thought that their SBA loan would be wiped in the bankruptcy. No. It's not. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so if you don't know that, learn this now that SBA loans, they, they're, they're like student loans that they don't go away with a bankruptcy. You still have to pay those back. And it's done by the federal government who also coincidentally does the IRS. So like they'll, <laughs> they'll hunt you down. And this lady, she was complaining to me how um, they had to go and get a part-time job just to pay back this this loan and her complaint was, and all this time we thought they were there to help us. <laughs> and I'm like, and, and I don't want to go into, you know, whether, you Sorry, know, I, I mean that. 
like, like I said, I don't know oh the, I goodness. don't know the specifics of the situation, so I can't, I can't speak oh. to whether she, you know, knew what she was getting I hope into. Someone else or, out there isn't listening, doing the same thing, and I'm just laughing at them. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're in a situation where you're getting loans you're raising your threshold. And that's what happened is when the market crashed for them, um, then they weren't able to make the cash. They went out of business and they have some pretty negative consequences because of that. I mean, to the point like they had to sell their house and move to try and unbury this whole situation. And, And it really was, you know, I mean, she had a positive outlook. She's like, well, we were able to move closer back to where family were. And, you know, and so we're happy to be where, you know, where, where our family is. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's good, but sure would have been nice to have made the choice to move back to family and still have, you know, all that equity in your home. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, just that, that's why, that's, that's why all this marketing matters. And when I say marketing, you know, in this situation, it was a construction uh, business and the market changed. And so, you know, too often we think of marketing as advertisement. We think about, oh, okay, well, you know, what are you doing with social media? Or are you putting ads out on the radio or what, whatnot? And I'm like, no, marketing, like they call it the market for a reason. Like his market changed and so his construction company couldn't stay in business. They, they actually didn't go bankrupt. They sold the business, but they didn't sell it for enough because they sold it in a down market. And, you know, so... Anyway, I, I don't want to linger too much on that no, little rain okay. cloud, but but it's a real situation. Well, and I want to, because I wanted to jump, because you talk about some other examples that really help you understand some of the concepts, but I want to just cover one thing real quick, and that is, um, as you're getting to this point, you talk about the importance of primary research to understand uh, the demand uh, of your cust- you know, potential customers. Mm-hmm not getting so focused on, you know, customer or potential customer, but understanding, do you really understand them and what they want and where they're going and what they need? Because if you don't, as you get into this one, that, that could become a real eyesore and, and you make um, um, a comment that a lot of times you hear something to the effect that, you know, when you um, ask how they, you know, in that startup stuff, you ask them and, th- and their response is something like, I don't know. We had people asking us for our product, so we would make it for them. At first it looked, it took us a while to figure out um, what we were doing, but then we were able to finally get the business to take off. Inferring that they they didn't really, it was kind of just. I sort of stumbled s- into it. Yeah, and there's some level of luck. and But a lot of that can be mitigated you know, with that primary research so that you really understand what your customers' wants and needs are and so that you're, you're really focusing your efforts where it should be versus, you know, flinging arrows in the dark, hoping that you hit something. Yeah, so um, yesterday I had a chance to go to an economic summit uh, yeah. I participated in, and uh, one of the breakout speakers was Michael Glauser, who oversees the entrepreneurial program for Utah State University. Uh, I actually know him personally because uh, he was one of the faculty when I was going through my entrepreneurial studies at Westminster College for my MBA program. And uh, so I got to know him. He wrote a book, and I apologize that I don't, I don't know the, the title specifically, but I think it's called Glorious Accidents. And 
it's an entrepreneurial book that just talks about how often entrepreneurs kind of stumble into something. And um, I make the argument that it's not as much of an accident as it is them doing primary research and not realizing it. They're, they're keeping their thresholds low enough that they can keep iterating in a safe zone until they figure out what their customer wants. And, and that's why people are like, oh, I just got lucky. I'm like, no, you didn't get lucky. You kept iterating. You kept making modifications to your products and services, your price point, your marketing approach, everything. You kept making all of these adjustments until you finally figured a success formula out. And then once you had that success formula, then you quote unquote launched your business, uh, you know, and so... So I look at this and, and a lot of times what we think is accidental is really just giving it enough time to germinate and to grow like it needs to grow. Uh, you know, I always talk about if I'm going to plant a tree, uh, I plant the tree, I water the tree, I weed the area around the tree, and then years later I get to, you know, pull the fruit off the tree. But if any of you have ever gone to, you know, uh, someone's house that, you know, they planted a tree 30 years ago and they're begging you to take the fruit off the tree because there's like it's producing <laughs> so much I just can't keep up with it. Uh, and you don't see all the effort that went into it because that was 30 years prior. Yeah. And I'm like, so that's how our businesses are. It's like we have to plant those seeds and, and we have to take care of those, you know, small plants for years before they take off. And it's not always years. I mean, there are businesses that they take off right away, but that's more the exception, not the rule, you know. And, and, and I, and I want to kind of wrap up on this this thought uh, you know, uh, there, there's a, uh, uh, toward the end of, of this section, it says, is this the only way to create a successful startup small business? No. There are many other ways and many examples of businesses that has, have successfully launched not following these principles. And the point is to say that this is not the end-all, be-all solution but the point is to say that if you want to have the best chance of success, this is it. That this is the best way to have success. And, you know, it mitigates your risk. It sets a solid foundation. It positions you for rapid growth. Can you get lucky? Yeah. Are there businesses that get lucky every day? Yeah. Do they fast track it? Sure. But that's, you know, that, that's more rare than not. There are a lot more businesses that lose money than businesses that, you know, get on that fast track and are, you know, hugely successful in a short period of time. And so that's why the success formula makes so much sense is it's like, look, this is a proven method that works well. Uh, and, and that's why we're recommending it and spelling it out in these languages. Like, I didn't come up with this method. I came up with a way to help entrepreneurs understand how to follow this method. That's what this book is about. Well, good. And that's a great, great wrap-up for Section 6 as you tie it all together. Um, great insight on, on it. Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I want to thank you for your time and sharing some of your additional thoughts. So in the next uh, podcast, we'll, we'll uh, wrap everything up um, with that section seven. I kind of call it the pep talk section for me <laughs> as, you, and you'll, as we get into it next time. We'll yeah. explain yeah. more about yeah, that. You'll know but, why when you hear it. <laughs> but that's, that's what I love about it is that last little pep talk, you know, that we get into it. So thanks again, everyone, for joining uh, us today on Marketing Management and Money and hope you've enjoyed this episode. Mm-hmm.